Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of God shown us in Jesus Christ that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you rescued us. You awakened hearts that were unresponsive by the Spirit of God, that we could have a choice to say yes or no to Jesus. And we thank you that when we say yes, you write uh, in us uh, the Spirit of God as an earnest, as a deposit. He is given to us as our helper, as our teacher, as the one who allows us to walk in his power rather than the power of the flesh. And thank you that his love has been poured out in our hearts, and he is the guarantee that the work that you began, you will complete. Now, we know, Father, it's heartbreaking to parents when they see their children not maturing. And we know it is just as heartbreaking to you when your children languish as babes in Christ. We know that's not your plan for us. And you've called us to first disciple our own, our own children that you've entrusted to us. And I pray that you would implant that in the hearts of dads and moms, that when they think of discipleship, they would not first think of the man down the street or someone at the office or in the battalion, but that they would think first of their own children that you've entrusted to them. And I ask, Father, that in these weeks ahead, especially dads as the leaders of their home, would really own the truths that we're going to study that they would become such a part of them that as they walk in the way, as they rise up, as they lay down, they would be able to teach these things to their children. So we commit this course to you that we know we won't do every single Wednesday, but when we are here, we pray that you would uh, allow us to learn and to grow and to be changed. I pray that you would help me and fill me and use me even tonight, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if uh, you've printed out your handout, the cover page says, Back to the Basics, a course on New Testament discipleship. And this is what we're calling topic number one. Now, I need to tell you in advance, topics sometimes will take two or three weeks. Uh, so not each topic represents a single week. Uh, when we offer this course at Community Bible Church, we call it the Discovery Class. And it typically takes about 45 weeks or more. And we offer it so that someone can begin any week they want. So if someone came to Christ this week and they walked into our discovery class at week 20, they could go weeks 20 to 45, 1 to 19. We never stop that class. It has been ongoing now for almost 30 years. 30 years ago in July, I became the pastor of this church. And one month after that, I began the discovery class. And it has never stopped. And God has always given us a flow of people. So it's set up so you don't have to start at the beginning, though I will say it's very helpful. And so I want to encourage you to stay with me through the entire course. And again, there will be some weeks where um, I may catch my breath and one of the other pastors will be speaking, but then we'll come right back to it. Now, the first lesson is what we're calling the eternal security of the Christian. There on page two of your handout. And if you have the handout, you can see that we have six primary objectives. Uh, number one, we want to distinguish 
between assurance of salvation and eternal security. Number two, we want to understand the promises of Scripture as they relate to having assurance of salvation and knowing that we are eternally secure. Number three, we want to be able to state three New Testament evidences for true conversion. Number four, we want to understand how salvation by grace serves as a motivation to godly living. Number five, we want to understand the difference between those who simply profess Christ as Lord but do not possess Christ as Lord. And number six, and this number six here, though some, some of the weeks have seven or eight or even ten objectives, some of the topics, each of the uh, topics will have some Scripture memory. And the Scripture memory will be listed at the end of the handout. Now, this handout will grow with the weeks to come. You've only gotten a portion of the handout this evening. And when we go to the second week of topic one, it will get longer. And the third week of topic one, and this first one usually takes three weeks. But if you want to get a jump on the memory verses, the memory verses are John 6, 37 through 40, John 6, 37 through 40, and 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And by the way, in one of our topics, we will discuss how do you effectively memorize Scripture. Now, by way of introduction, let me just speak to uh, something that's already come up in these object objectives, and that is the distinction between eternal security and assurance of salvation. Approximately 90% of Christians worldwide, whatever country you may be finding yourself in, and you meet believers, affirm both assurance and eternal security. I'm talking about true Christians now. Now, there are certainly denominations that are Christianized that do not represent the gospel that believe neither. For instance, Roman Catholics, they call it the sin of presumption. It's actually a cataloged sin to say that you can know that you're saved. They say that's prideful, that that's presumptuous. They say no one can know for sure that they are truly saved and at the moment of death that they will enter into the presence of the Lord. Now, we're going to see before we're done that to say you know you're saved is not arrogance or boastful. It's the exact opposite. It's humility, if indeed you truly understand the plan of salvation. But amongst evangelical, and by evangelical, that's a loose term today. There was a time when people made distinctions between an evangelical, a Pentecostal, and a charismatic. They weren't all the same, even those three broad designations. Uh, that's pretty much gone, and, and so now people who believe the Bible generally are called evangelical, and maybe that term is becoming splintered so much that it's going to change again here before too long. But generally speaking, Bible-believing Christians approximately 90% teach both assurance and eternal security. And let me explain the difference. Assurance of salvation says, I know right now that I am saved, that I am a child of God, that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Eternal security says, not only do I have that assurance, I will, can never change that factor, that I know I'm saved Today, I can know I'll be saved 30 years from now. I can know I'll be saved until the day I die because I can never lose eternal life. 
there are some Christian denominations, and again, they make up a minority of believers in the world, but still, they are brothers in Christ who say that, I know I'm saved today, but I don't know I'll be saved a year from now or five years from now. And so they affirm the assurance of a believer knowing that he's saved, but they don't affirm that they know they will be saved five years from now or 10 years from now because they do not believe in the eternal security of the believer. Typically, uh, denominations that would fall into that realm would be like Assemblies of God, uh, the Pentecostal denominations, a Methodist, Episcopals, uh, Methodist Episcopals, African Methodist AME, African Methodist Episcopals. Now, there's exceptions to that. You will meet a Methodist who believes not only in assurance, but in eternal security. But interestingly, out of Methodism, out of John Wesley's theology, uh, who himself was actually an Episcopalian, never technically became a Methodist, but out of his theology came the Methodist movement. And because Wesley taught that there was a second work of grace after salvation, which he admitted he had never experienced, but he planted the seeds for Pentecostal theology. And so out of the Episcopal Church, the 39 Articles of Faith, the Methodist Church, the Book of Discipline, uh, Pentecostals, charismatic, so forth, which puts a big emphasis on experience, so much so that sometimes experience is placed over the authority of Scripture. They teach that you can lose your salvation. Now, it's debatable whether John Wesley thought you could lose your salvation, but the fact is, is that the 39 Articles of Faith of the Episcopal Church teach that you can, as does the Methodist Church, at least those few Methodists that still even believe in the Bible. So with that said, I just want you to know you're going to meet some people. He might be a Nazarene, and he says you can lose your salvation. Again, the roots are similar for all of these particular groups. So what I hope to show you in these next three weeks is not only can we have assurance of salvation, but we can know that we are secure forever and ever and ever. So if you just want an overview here in your handout, you can see Roman numeral one, so you know where we're going. First, we're going to deal with the provision of salvation. And we're going to say that it's on the basis of how God saves us that we can have assurance and eternal security. And we're going to look at a number of passages and texts that uh, address that specific issue. Then um, we will move on not only to the basis of the provision of our salvation, we'll deal with promises concerning salvation. So we're going to look at a number of different arguments that Scripture gives, either uh, by theological argument or direct statement, that affirm that we are not only assured, but we are eternally secure. And then we're going to deal with the proof of salvation. One of the kickbacks to people who rebel against the doctrine of eternal security, and again, it's based on experience, is people that they know that claim to be born again, but don't give any evidence of a new life. Well, let me just say, as we will see, people who teach the doctrine of eternal security correctly 
will argue that there are certain proofs or evidences that will be exhibited in a person's life if they've truly met the Lord. And then uh, Roman numeral five of this first topic is we'll deal with what we call pseudo-salvation, that there are fake Christians, they're not really born again, but Christ promised us that they would always be in the church until he returns. So tonight we're gonna begin with the provision of salvation. As you read through these handouts, I usually put in italics some of uh, the theological persuasions that I'm trying to communicate to who's ever studying this material. And so I begin with the reason we can know that we are eternally secure is based on the truth that salvation is not earned or achieved, but by the grace of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I hope you understand that. See, Roman Catholics, and they're consistent, so I give them credit. Because salvation is not by grace alone through faith alone, because they really, in essence, deny the five solas of the Protestant Reformation that's on the window here behind you, because fundamentally they do not believe in sola scriptura, that there's an authority outside of the Bible through tradition and through the magisterium of the church, they teach that salvation is not by grace alone, that salvation is partly merited or earned. And so if that's the case, no one could logically be convinced to say they know that they know that they know that they are saved. So fundamental to assurance and the doctrine of eternal security, the starting place is to understand that Christ completely, absolutely paid for our salvation. So we're going to look at some main passages, and we're going to start tonight with uh, John chapter 3. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 3. And by the way, this is a passage I think every Christian who names the name of Christ ought to be able to explain. We're going to look at some other passages beyond John 3 that are definitely uh, more challenging. They're a little more meaty, a little more depth, but they're still important. But as a starting place, every believer ought to be able to know how to explain John chapter 3. So let's start there in John 3 in verse 1. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now the Pharisees, there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees in the days of Christ. There's different religious groups that you're going to read about in the New Testament. The two biggest ones are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's others like the Herodians and the Zealots and so forth. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the two principal groups. The Sadducees only affirmed the first five books of the Bible as Scripture. They believed only in the law, that is the Torah, uh, the works of Moses. Uh, they interpreted the Scripture literally. Uh, the problem was is that uh, because they were blinded by their sin, sometimes their interpretation was not accurate. Nothing wrong with a grammatical, historical interpretation. But um, beyond that, uh, they came up with some really weird views. They didn't believe, of course, that there was life after death, they thought when you died and you were buried, that was it. The soul didn't go on to live. Uh, they, they denied some basic fundamental truths of the Bible. So they were sad, you see, because of their view of life beyond the grave. The Pharisees, the word means a separated one. And again, there was about 6,000 in the day of Christ. 
Uh, They affirmed the entire Old Testament. However, with that said, they gave equal credence to what was called the oral tradition. The oral tradition uh, was basically uh, how people understood the Scriptures to be interpreted. And so there were rabbis from generation to generation. They said, well, this is what Moses meant in the quarantine, say, in the book of Leviticus, or, or this is what he meant on divorce. And so, for instance, there are two schools of, on how you understood Deuteronomy chapter 24. Um, one was the school of Hillel, and the other was the school of Shammai. And even among the Pharisees, there were different oral traditions. There came a point uh, about almost 300 years after Christ where the oral tradition was codified. It was written down, and we call that today the Mishnah. But they gave equal credence to oral tradition. Now, are the oral traditions wrong? Not necessarily. Some of them are right. Uh, If you met someone uh, who knew the Apostle Paul and sat under his teaching, Uh, They might say, well, here's how Paul explained that passage. And they might represent Paul well. They might not. And so, Scripture needs to interpret Scripture. And the Pharisees, of course, uh, were very confrontational with our Lord. And Jesus told them that they often substituted the traditions of men. He's talking about the oral traditions for what God had actually said. So there's this man of the Pharisees, his Greek name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. When it says he's a ruler of the Jews, that means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was basically the supreme court of Israel on religious affairs. There were 70 men plus the high priest. And they uh, ruled on religious, spiritual matters. So this guy is no lightweight. He's a heavyweight, and the Sanhedrin goes all the way back to the days of Moses. If you remember in the book of Numbers, Moses was just so overwhelmed, listening hour after hour, trying to deal with the problems, and and the solution was to choose 70 men, and God promised that the Spirit who had been on Moses, that He also would help these 70 to help rule in these cases. So that tradition continued, and so the Sanhedrin Uh, was the ruling council, and this man was on it. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, why did he come to him by night? We don't know. There's a lot of conjecture. People say he came by night because he didn't want to be seen uh, by other religious leaders that he was coming at night. Some say he came at night because that was the only time he could find Christ and get an appointment. Some say he came by night because he wanted a private conversation and didn't want to be interrupted. The fact is, the text doesn't tell us, and if I say this is why he came by night, then I'm guilty of eisegesis reading into the text what God has not explicitly said. But it might be that all of those reasons that just stated are accurate. So he comes to him by night, and he says, Rabbi. Rabbi is a a title that was given, a respected title of of a teacher of the Scriptures. So he himself is a rabbi. He's called a teacher in this chapter of Scripture, and he's coming to one that he affirms is a legitimate rabbi. And he respectfully says, Rabbi, we know. He doesn't say, I know, but we know. You should circle that pronoun, we, because he is coming really on behalf. He's coming in a representative fashion of other leaders in the nation. We know that you've come from God as a teacher. 
for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. God put them, allowed them to be put in there. God didn't put them in there, but man put them in there almost a thousand years after the scriptures were complete so that you could find your way around. There came a point where we went from scrolls to what we call a codex in the fourth century. A codex was a, a bound version of a scroll, like a book, but there were no chapter divisions. I have a, a couple of Bibles, one that was done in the 1950s, a New Testament, one more recently, about five years ago, where there's no chapter or verse divisions, just the whole book. And sometimes I like to pick that up. It's kind of refreshing just to pick it up and, and read it without any of the divisions that might distract you. But if you remember at the end of chapter 2, it says in verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, that is his miracles, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he himself knew what was in man. So Nicodemus is observing the miracles there in Jerusalem. And his conclusion is that these miracles are not being done by the devil because the devil can do miracles. And some of the Pharisees, as the ministry of Christ progresses, they assume that the miracles Jesus did were done by the devil. But he says, no, we know these miracles you're doing come from God. And how would you know, by the way, if someone came today and did a miracle, whether the miracle is from God or whether it was from the evil one? It's a combination of both truth, what God has revealed in Scripture, along with the miracle. That's how we would have known. So there's coming a future cluster of miracles during the tribulation. And those men who will do the miracles, who are representing God in that time frame, will also preach the truth of God. They're called the two witnesses. But during the same time frame, Jesus taught in Matthew 24, there will be false prophets and teachers who will do all kinds of signs and wonders that will be so dramatic and so convincing that even the elect could potentially be deceived. So he comes to the conclusion, we know you've come from God as a teacher. What he doesn't know is that he's more than someone who's come from God as a teacher. He is God who's come to teach, but he's going to learn that, uh, not necessarily on this day. And so he says, no one can do these signs. And by the way, the word sign is the word semion in Greek. And whenever there's usually a significant um, issue in the language, if you have a New American Standard with references, then it will note that. And so out in the margin, there's a little footnote one. And if you went out in the margin and you looked at verse two and you looked at uh, the first footnote, verse one, it would tell you uh, this particular word for miracles. And there are three in the New Testament. One that describes largely the wonder that the miracle brings. Another Greek word that describes the power the miracle exhibits. And then this particular word is typically used of a miracle with a message. And by the way, if you know John's gospel, uh, he highlights seven particular miracles, five that are unique to his gospel. And he's writing not just to believers, but he's writing with an evangelistic purpose. These things I've written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and in believing you might find life in his name. And so no one can do these miracles you're doing unless God is with him. 
Jesus responds, verse 3, he answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is going to underscore two truths, first seeing the kingdom of God, and a few verses later, entering the kingdom of God. And there are two distinct words with two distinct concepts. One is seeing the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus is blind, but he's not blind here, he's blind here. He has blindness of heart, as do most of the Pharisees of the day. Though this man obviously has an openness to the things of God because he's seeking after the Lord. God's doing something in his life, and this man is responding to it. Not every Pharisee was a hard-hearted unbeliever. One of the greatest Pharisees who was ever converted, his name, of course, was Saul of Tarsus. So unless you are born again, you could render it, the King James says, born from above. The particular Greek word that's used carries a dual nuance. So it's not, well, the King James is right and the New American Standard is wrong. They're both correct. He's talking about a second birth, born anew, some translations say, born again, born from above. He's talking about a supernatural birth that must take place for one to be able to see, understand, perceive, and as we'll see in a moment, to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So he's asking a, a question. He just doesn't get it. He said, how is that possible, Lord? What do you mean born twice? And he brings it to the physical. You can't re-enter your mother's womb and have another physical birth. I really don't know what you are saying. I don't think he's being antagonistic here. He's being quite searching. So Jesus said, amen, amen, verily, verily, truly, truly. It's the word amen. And when Jesus said, truly, truly, he's saying, I'm banging the pulpit. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say because it's really important. Any rabbi who wanted to introduce a critically important truth would say, amen, amen, truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can one be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And sometimes, while you may not always know definitively what a text may mean, you can very often say what it does not mean. And so, our Church of Christ friends who teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, there's always exceptions to that. The Disciples of Christ, the Christian church denomination, typically teach that baptism is a requirement for salvation, which, by the way, is a different gospel. It's no different from the Galatian era, where you add something. Those groups don't deny the death, burial, and the resurrection. They just say it's not enough. And so they'll say, if you're not baptized, you'll never enter into heaven. Now, if by that someone meant that if you're genuinely born again, then you will confess Christ through baptism. Okay, I could understand that. 
uh, though that would certainly prohibit a lot of our Presbyterian brothers who have infant baptism who definitely definitively know Christ and other examples, but we'll cover that when we come in this 45-week course to the subject of baptism. But we know for sure that it does not refer to water baptism. And this is the text that they would use, and by the way, that Roman Catholics would use. So if I want to know, well, what kind of Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Christian church denomination are they? Do they really believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone? And someone's asking me, check out this church. I go to their doctrinal statement. And when they put Acts 2.38 and John 3 and verse 5 as part of the plan of salvation, and they typically say, repent, believe, confess, be baptized, and you'll be saved. And they will then have John 3.5, Romans 6, and Acts 2.38 as text to substantiate that. Again, we'll cover this, but we know what it doesn't mean. Paul says in Romans 1.16, and if you want to write down three verses in the margin, I'd say put down Romans 1.16, put down 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and put down 1 Corinthians 1.17. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, there the word gospel is articular. Sometimes uh, the word gospel is used without the article, and it's just being used in a general sense, even in the New Testament. Uh, just some good news, some gospel, some evangelion. But when it's articular, the gospel, then he's referring to a specific good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel, Paul, that brings salvation? Well, he's going to spend the next several chapters describing it and defining it. But in a very succinct way, in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance the gospel. What is it? That Christ died, was buried, and was raised, and twice over, he says, according to the Scriptures. In other words, the good news, Paul said, that I delivered to you, Corinthians, was found in the Old Testament Scriptures. I didn't make it up. It's all there. And of course, the early church in the early days, that's all they had was the Old Testament Scriptures in which to defend the truth of the gospel. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul will say, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul clearly separates baptism from the, plant, from the gospel. So to make water here, baptism, is to violate other clear portions of Scripture, not to mention the context itself. Now, some good brothers who would immediately dismiss water baptism, say, well, this is an allusion to the washing of the Word. And sometimes, like in Ephesians 5, uh, the Word of God is seen as a washing, cleansing agent. At least that's consistent with other Scripture. Though I don't think, and there's some other like interpretation, that's what's in view. I think it contextually, he's referring to Nicodemus's question, how can a man be born? A second time. He can't re-enter the birth canal and come out again. And so Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water, that's your first birth. You are in a water sack in your mother's womb and it breaks and you come into this world. You must be born of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born a second time. Physical birth is not enough. And that's a shattering concept to a Jew in his day. 
because the average Jew in Nicodemus's day said, look, we are a member of the covenant people of God. We are descendants of Abraham. We're right with God. God is going to take us to heaven. We're part of the chosen covenant people. They were chosen as a nation. They are God's covenant people, and they still are, by the way. But it does not mean that that automatically means that every Jew went to heaven. In the rebellion of Korah, God opened up the earth, and men were literally alive, brought down into unrighteous Sheol. And of course, in John chapter 8, if you want to fast forward a little bit, if you remember, Jesus had an encounter um, with uh, some of the Jewish leaders in his day, and he says in verse um, John chapter 8, verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, we'll come to this a little bit later in this first topic, they did not believe in him, they simply believed him. And there's a difference as the New Testament affirms. Sometimes when it just says someone believed, it's not always a reference to true conversion. But when you see the preposition accompanied with it, believe in him, then you are typically staring at genuine faith. So they had believed him. They had acknowledged certain truths about him intellectually, like the demons believe and tremble. But again, if you didn't know Greek or Greek grammar or anything like that, you can most of the time figure it out. So don't be intimidated by someone who studied Greek, because most of the time the context draws it out, and the only thing that the Greek New Testament will do for the exegete is further affirm what their suspicions or thoughts are. And so he says, um, uh, these people who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which your heart, uh, which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of pornea, fornication. That rumor that went all the way back to the birth of Christ. Mary, she got pregnant out of wedlock. You're born of pornea. You're born of... We weren't born of pornea. We have one father, God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I've not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. These are not converted people. 
but they thought they were right because of their Jewishness. And Jesus said, it's not enough to be born once. It's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. You must be born a second time to enter the kingdom of God. Look at verse 6. He explains that that's the nuance contextually, what he has in view. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's your first birth. It's a physical birth. It's a fleshly birth. It's a fallen birth. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't be amazed. Don't be blown away. Don't be shocked that I say to you, you must be born again. You see, a prevalent thought, if Josephus is correct, of the Jews in those days is that they had already been born again, that they were already right with God. They looked at some of the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they say, okay, well, God says he's regathered the people. Then he'd do a spiritual work among them. And the third part of the promises in those two prophets is the only thing left is for Messiah to come and rule and reign on the earth. And they looked at the regathering, but it was not as God had specified. He had gathered them from Babylon, but that's not what God had described in Ezekiel or Jeremiah, because he describes a gathering not from a single country, but from the four corners of the world. And he puts it in the latter days at the end of time. And their being spiritual through the Pharisees and the Sadducees was not the same as the New Testament description, nor what Jeremiah or Ezekiel described, where God would take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, where God would make it soft and pliable and sensitive to the things of God such that men would walk in his statutes. They had seen none of those. So in one sense, it was shocking to Nicodemus. Don't be blown away. Don't be amazed that I'm telling you that you must be born again. Well, we didn't get too far tonight because of the time I took on dealing with the COVID, but we will pick it up here next week, God willing. But between now and next week, you might begin memorizing the two scripture verses that I gave and if you're a dad, this would be a great thing to do with some of your children. If you're married, maybe with your wife and help each other. And we'll talk a little bit about how to successfully memorize Scripture in this course on basic discipleship. But I want to encourage you between now and next week to walk all the way through in your mind John 3, 1 through 16. Start there next week, and we will pick it up, and we'll look at some other texts of Scriptures as well. Let's bow our minds and hearts in prayer, and some of the men who've been asked to pray are going to come to the microphones. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you allow us to have a birth from above that dead hearts are quickened and made alive, that we become new creatures in Christ, that our hearts cry out to you, Abba, Daddy, Father, and there's a tenderness that a second birth brings and a closeness of relationship that is so sweet and so wonderful and so marvelous and so assuring of what is in the future for us. So in these days, we pray for people who are not really certain of their salvation or some who are but don't understand how secure they are in this salvation. 
that I would not convince them, but the Spirit of God would through the Word of God, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.